Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, if you will turn to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. So where we've been in our series in Daniel um, is we started out by talking about a Christ-centered identity. That, it, that if we're going to not just survive in Babylon, but if we're going to thrive in a, in a Babylonian culture that's hostile towards God and hostile towards following Christ, then, then, then our identity has to be wrapped up in Christ, um, who, who, by the way, suffered great hostility. Like, like we, we don't, we're not just looking at Daniel, but we're looking at Christ. Um, um, one of our guys said, as the greater Daniel, um, as, we, as we read through this. And so we want everything to be turned back towards we, our identity is found in Christ. And then we moved on to chapter 2, and we talked about um, a Christ-centered attitude that it's possible that, that in a culture that's hostile towards things of God, it's possible for us to have an attitude um, that's not woe is me, um, that's not poor, poor, pitiful me, but, but an attitude that honors Christ in the midst of this um, culture. And, and listen, anytime you walk consistently in a Christ-centered identity with Christ-centered attitude, listen, culture is going to back you into a corner. You know that? That if your identity is wrapped up in Christ, and your attitude is wrapped up in Christ, then the culture that is not wrapped up in Christ, it's going to back you into a corner. Now, the only exception is that culture experiences revival, which, by the way, none of us have experienced in our lifetime. Okay, like, like you might have experienced just a taste of revival, but, but I'm talking about revival that goes from coast to coast. We haven't experienced that fully. Okay? Um, so, so anytime that, that, that a culture is not in the middle of revival, um, then, then it, you're going to be pushed into a corner, shoved into a corner, um, whenever you consistently walk in a Christ-centered identity with Christ-centered attitude. So we're going to see in Daniel chapter 3 what that looks like. What that looks like to be pushed into a corner and how we are to respond. By the way, Daniel chapter 3, Daniel's not mentioned here. Like you know the story, this is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting thrown into the fiery furnace for refusing to bow down, Daniel's not mentioned here. Why? Well, there, there's a couple of options probably. Um, one could be that Daniel has a moment of weakness and he's bowing before this statue. And you say, no, that's not Daniel. He's human just like us. How many times have we had a moment of weakness where, where we get wrapped up in the wrong thing? We sin. He could be there. But, but possibly, and what most scholars probably lean towards is, you know, he has risen to great significance in Babylon. So King Nebuchadnezzar has probably sent him out of the area um, on some sort of mission um, to, to accomplish his work somewhere, somewhere else. Okay, so it could be one of the things, whatever the case is, Daniel's not mentioned here as one that stand in opposition to, um, to, to this culture, to this king who is hostile towards the things of God. Um, we're we're going to look at the text, so let me invite you to stand. Um, we're going to read the first seven verses here to start out. And we're going to work our way through chapter 3. Um, um, but we're going to see this Christ-centered testimony. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth was 6 cubits. Okay, this is probably a statue that's in the neighborhood of 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Very significant sized statue. Um, he set it up on the, pl on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, 
the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, so this is like a, a significant ceremony. Okay, he's calling all the big names to come in and, and be a part of this. Verse 3, then the satraps, the, pre, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You're commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, in other words, when the band starts playing, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. So just catching you up, this it's, it's pretty significant that Nebuchadnezzar builds this statue when he does. Because if you remember chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. It's a dream of a statue, right? And it's frightening to him. It has a head of gold, and then you move down, and it's got um, silver, and then bronze, and then iron, and then iron mixed with clay. Remember um, from from, um, Daniel chapter 2, you remember that? Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and the interpretation of the dream is, hey, that little piece of gold at the top, that represents you, Nebuchadnezzar, in Babylon. But by the way, you're going to fall to a kingdom called Persia that represents silver, and then they're going to fall to a kingdom represented by Greece, Alexander the Great, and so on down to Rome. Um, and so what does Nebuchadnezzar do? It's almost as if, I'll show you, God. And so he comes and he builds this massive statue, and it's not, it doesn't look like the statue that God revealed. It's, it's overlaid with solid gold. Oh God, you say, you say that. They're going to come overthrow me. Let me show you. So it's almost as if he builds this statue in defiance to God. But, but he gives a command to the culture that you must bow down um, and worship this image that I'm making. It's kind of interesting the language that he uses here. He says every people, all the peoples, every nations, every language. It sounds very similar to every tribe, tongue, nation that's going to be worshiping our God. And he says, culture, and culture's behind this. You must bow down. Can I tell you that we live in a culture that's trying hard to get us to bow to other things? Just two weeks ago in California, a law was passed um, protecting the rights of, of the transgender. And, and it, was, it was geared more towards the health care um, health profession, and here, here's, here's the law, that you must, that if you're a health worker, you must refer to a person based off of the gender they pick rather than the gender they are. And if you repeatedly don't call the, the, whoever it is by the, by the pronoun that they want to be called by, if it's a he and they want to be called by a she, if, if you don't do that after repeated times and you're malicious about this, that you're, that you're definite about this, then you can be fined up to $1,000 and or spend up to a year in jail in California. So, so listen, the culture that we live in is kind of 
forcing us into a certain direction. And, and that's what's going on here in Daniel chapter 3. But we're going to see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they decide that they're not going to bow down, um, but they're going to be faithful to God. So look at verse 8. Here's where we're going to see this. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, these are Babylonians, came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. But by the way, we need to get some of those, some of those instruments. Scott, can you work some of those we'll work some of those in? Uh, verse 11, whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you, King Nebuchadnezzar, whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. Okay, so we we see what's going on. That We, we see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... They're not going to bow down. They're going to be faithful to their God. Now I want you to notice that up to this point, um, they're, they're doing so quietly. Did you, did you catch that? Like, like they're not saying, um, hey, we're not going to do this. Like there's no mention of that. In fact, these, these Chaldeans, these Babylonians have to go to the king and they have to say, hey, there's, everyone's bowed down except these three. Like they're, they're doing so quietly, but at some point they're forced to speak up. And what they do is they speak up um, without being disrespectful. However, it was clear where they stood. Got me wondering, what happens when, when we, what happens when we have a clear Christ-centered testimony in Babylon? Hey, that's, what we're, that's what we're talking about to us. What's going to happen to us when we have a clear, Christ-centered testimony in a Babylonian culture? You guys with me? Come on. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Here's, here's what happens when we have a, Christ, a clear, Christ-centered testimony in Babylon. Number one, we set up a showdown between God and culture. We set up a showdown between God and culture. Look with me in verse 13. Verse 13 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, we're going to play it again. We're going to fire up the band again. If, if, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Listen. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And did, you, did you catch that? Who is this? Who is this God that's going to deliver you? Like he's not saying it. He's not marveling at God. He's almost mocking. So, so you think your God's 
more powerful than me? Who's going to deliver you if I give this order? Who is he? I think it's important for us to know that when culture attacks us as Christians, they're ultimately attacking God. They're ultimately attacking God. Nebuchadnezzar, he's taunting these three men. He's taunting God. Listen, because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they've proven that their identity is wrapped up in God, that their, that their attitude is wrapped up in God, that their testimony is wrapped up in God. Listen, culture has taken note. But let me point back to what we've already read. It says certain Chaldeans came and said, um, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you gave the order to bow down, but these three Jews... They're not doing it. You see, culture has taken note of these guys' testimonies. They recognize these three men's testimonies. Let me ask you, has culture taken note of your Christ-centered identity? Has culture taken note of your Christ-centered attitude? Have they taken note of your Christ-centered testimony? We can't send mixed messages. You know, we're either we're either over here in the corner, um, standing for what the Bible says and, and like making that very very apparent. This is what the Bible says, what I believe, but our lives sometimes don't back it up. Or maybe our lives are kind of living for Christ, but we're never speaking of it, which is really confusing to the world. We can't send mixed messages. Let me give you some examples of some mixed messages. Abortion. Like like we we are against abortion, and we very. Um, we're adamant about that, right? We we, we go to it and, and listen. I'm like I'm like driving the bus to the to the Rose Day um, things that where we where we stand um, against abortion, our view against abortion. Because here's our here's our here's our phrase: choose life, right? We are for life. We are Christians. We are for life. But are we for all life? What about the born? who have no parents. Some 10,000 kids in foster care in the state of Oklahoma on any given day. Some 400 needing to be adopted right now. And will age out of the system with no parents. Nowhere to go home on fall break. No going home at Thanksgiving. No going home for Christmas. Are we really for life? Or are we just for the unborn? We send sometimes mixed messages. What about, what about marriage? We, we talked about this a little bit last week. And we say, well, I'm for biblical marriage. We stand for biblical marriage. But do we live it? Like wives are, you, wives, are you submitting to your husband and respecting your husband and loving your husband as the church submits to the Lord? Husbands, are you loving your wives? Um, as Christ loved the church and gave His life for her with gentleness, leading her to know, to know God more. Do we, do we really stand for biblical marriage or do we send mixed signals? Do we send mixed messages? We say we're for sexual morality. There's so many men in the church, in the, in the, in the universal church, that are hooked on pornography those who claim to be followers of Christ, living as if married and not being married? Do we? What, what message are we sending when we say we're for this? Are we really? 
Here's an example of a mixed message. We say we're for the we're for reaching the lost. But do we share the gospel? Listen, when we when we don't send mixed messages, when we have a Christ centered testimony, when we do when we do both, when our lives match up with what we say, we have this clear Christ centered testimony. Listen, when we do that, we set up a showdown between God and culture. If we just speak or we just stand, we seem hypocritical to the world and they mock us. But when we do both, we set up a showdown. It's like it's like Elijah in Mount Carmel, right? Um, where where um, Elijah says, hey, my God's the God and I'm going to show you. If my God's God, serve Him. If, if your God, the Baal and the idol worships, if, that, if they're God, worship them. But, but a showdown is set, is set up. A line in the sand is drawn, and it's very clear which side Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is on, which side everyone else is on. When we have this very clear, this very Christ-centered testimony, listen, we, we set up a showdown between the world, between culture and our God. Number two. Number two, when we have a very clear Christ-centered testimony, number two, in a Babylonian culture, number two, we can expect persecution. We can expect persecution. Look at verse 16 with me. Verse 16 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered said to the king, O king Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. Listen, I kind of get the impression that um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't think that God's going to come through in, in a way that they think, right? They say that he's able to deliver. They, they probably think a lot like we do in a lot of terms, that, oh, God's going to deliver, he's going to heal us, um, but it might not be this side of heaven. Like Sometimes that's our attitude. Like, like God, they're, they're saying God can deliver, but I, I think they get the impression that He's not going to this side of heaven. Because if you, if you track Scripture, if you track it from a chronological sense, there hasn't been many miracles in, in hundreds of years since, since Elijah and Elisha. And then before that, for, for several hundred years, there hasn't been many miracles um, until you get to Moses, if you're going backwards. And so they, they've heard stories of God. They know He's able to deliver them but they're not convinced in their, in their mind that he's going to. But they're willing to go into the fiery furnace anyway. They know that from, a, from, from this side of heaven that this is probably going to end badly for them. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember in chapter 1? Um, he, he held them in high esteem, and they were, they were promoted. Um, and so here's what he did. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Funny that the world, it goes into a rage when it sees a Christ-centered testimony. We're described as being bigots. We're described as being narrow-minded. We're described as being hateful. We're were described as being against people. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, uh, He ordered some of the mighty men of his army 
to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks. Listen how hot it was. Their tunics, their hats, their garments, they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 22, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took, who, who drugged Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, to the furnace. In verse 23, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Can I tell you that persecution is not an isolated event, but it seems to regularly happen in Scripture? I keep mentioning Elijah and the prophets of Baal. I mean, you know it was determined before the showdown, before the showdown that they had. Um, but before the showdown, um, it was determined that whoever, whoever failed um, in this showdown was going to be put to death. God wins, and, and he uses Elijah um, in, in that particular story, but Elijah still fears for his life because the king and the queen are trying to kill him. Go to the New Testament. Jesus is crucified, right? Now, now we know it's for our salvation, but, but if you just look at the surface, you know why he goes to the cross? Because of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who weren't buying in to what that he was the Son of God. They discounted his miracles. They discounted his healing. They discounted his teaching. And if you just look at the surface, it's the Pharisees. It's his own people that say, crucify him. The apostles are, are imprisoned. They're beaten. They're murdered. Today, in some parts of the world, if you take a stand for Christ and have a clear Christ-centered testimony, your kids are not allowed to attend the public schools. You can lose your job. They take your possessions in certain parts of the world. They'll cut off a limb. They'll cut out your tongue for speaking the name of Christ. They'll take your kids, imprison you, and murder you. And if we're just being honest, here's where we're tempted to lie low, right? Where it costs us something. We're tempted to lie low. See, we're okay being a Christian in church, right? Where it's, where it's still popular to be a Christian in church. We're, we're okay being a Christian at church, but what about at home? What about when you don't have a, a believing spouse? What if your parents, students, students, what if your parents are not believers? We're tempted to lie low. We can, we're okay being a Christian at church, but students, what about at school where it's not popular? Where it's popular to do your own thing? Where it's popular to chase after the world? What about at work where it's not popular to say um, that Jesus is the only way to life? The heaven, that forgiveness that's only found in Christ. That we're sinful outside of Christ. Without Christ, we're sinful. Is it popular to talk about Christ with certain friends? And what we do is we tend to lie low because we think God's not going to come through in the way that we, would, we want. We know He can. We just don't think that He will. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our God is able to deliver us and He's going to. But if He doesn't, we're not going to do it. We think God won't come through. But the opposite seems to happen when we look at Scripture. 
When we, when we have a Christ-centered testimony, when our actions and, and our speech, when, it, when it's clear, and we, we set up this showdown between God and culture, and we, we can expect persecution to happen. But look at number three. Look at number three. When we, when we, um, when we have this, this clear Christ-centered testimony in Babylonian culture, number three, God shows up and God shows off. All right? God shows up. And God shows off. Look at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did did we not cast three men into the fire? They answered, True. True, King, we, we did. Verse 25, he answered them and said, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Or if you have the King James Version, like the, like the son of God. And there's, there's a little bit of um, disagreement among scholars about who this fourth man is. In my mind, he's not an angel. In my mind, it's Christ himself. Walking through the flames with these men. They're unbound. They're unhurt. The showdown has been set up and it's not culture versus Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's it's culture versus God. Persecution happens, but God shows up. And God shows off. Listen, there's no fire. There's nothing we can go through that He in His presence will not satisfy. Listen to what Romans um, chapter 8 says, this is a very familiar passage to us. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. It says, what shall we say um, about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also when with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who at the right hand of God, who who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Or distress, maybe that will separate us from the love of Christ. Or or persecution, maybe that will separate us from the love of Christ. Or famine, maybe that will separate us from the love of Christ. Or nakedness, maybe that will separate us from the love of Christ. Or danger, maybe that will separate us from the love of Christ. Or the sword, maybe that will separate us from the love of Christ. As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all all day long. Maybe maybe it's a gruesome death that will separate us from the love of Christ. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, no. And all these things were more and conquerors through Him who loved us. I'm sure of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And our testimony is clear of what we say about what we believe in our lives that back it up, it's going to pit us against culture. It's going to to draw a line in the sand with God and culture. 
We're going to be persecuted for it. But God is going to show up. Jesus is going to show up. He's going to show off. And so with Elijah, it's, it's Elijah versus 400 prophets of a false idol called Baal. They, they, they put wood on, they, they built this altar and put wood on it. And they slaughtered the animal, put the carcass on there, and, says the, and, and Elijah says, the God who, who sends down fire, that's the God, we'll serve him. The other person will be put to death. So all day the prophets of Baal go through this bizarre ceremony, praying to this statue to send fire from heaven. 400, nothing happens. Elijah says, my turn. He says, hey, you got, we got this. Why don't you dig a, dig a trench around mine? And let's, fill up, let's fill up all these buckets of water. And I want you to drench my, my sacrifice. And, and it drenches and it runs off the, the, the animal into the, off the carcass into the, the trench and fills it up. And he calls on God. And fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. God shows up and He shows off. What about with Moses? When, when they're at the Red Sea in, in Egypt is closing in on the people of God and there's nowhere to turn. It's God who shows up and shows off and they walk through on dry land. What about Joshua and Jericho? When Israel is against this unpenetrable fortress and this incredible army from Jericho. God says you don't even have to fight. Just march, take the band, play the song, and I'll do the rest. What about Daniel and the lion's den in a couple weeks? When he's thrown, thrown down to hungry animals that, that are ready to rip him apart and he's not touched. What about Martin Luther, let's, let's step outside of Scripture a little bit. Listen, we're celebrating this month 500 years of the Protestant Re Reformation. Like, like we're here worshiping today because Martin Luther, 500 years ago, um, nailed his thesis to the, to, to the Catholic Church. And, and here, here's, what, here's what he said. He says that Scripture teaches that faith alone is, is for salvation. That, that we're saved through faith alone. That Scripture alone is enough for us to know and, and learn God, that what He gives us Scripture alone is enough. That Christ alone is all we need, that we don't have to do this, we don't have to do that, or we don't have to do all these things to get God to like us. That salvation is grace alone, as He pours out His Spirit upon us and saves us, and we don't earn salvation. And, he says, glory, and, then, and then fifthly, He says, glory to God alone. That's what Luther says. That, that, that the Pope is not supreme, that he's not to be worshipped, that, that your local bishop, that he's not to be worshipped, that God alone, God alone is worthy. Church, the church didn't like it. You know, there was a lot of money involved, and the church didn't like what he was doing. A lot of corruption involved. The church didn't like it, what he was doing. And so they're ready to light him with a fire, like a fiery furnace. They said, all you have to do is take back what you said, and we'll let you live. He says, I ain't, I'm, I'm not recanting. No, I'll put my twist. I ain't recanting nothing. You light me You light me up. I'm not taking anything back. God shows up and delivers him even then. He shows up and he shows off. What about 
ultimately the cross, right? Look at the cross where it looked as if death had won. And it looked like sin had won. Until after three days He arose victorious over both. And what was meant to be the, the darkest moment in history where the Son of God was slaughtered, He rose victorious. He always shows up and shows off. When does God not come through? Well, maybe in death. You're mentioning um, all, all these things with life, and, and they get off. And, and even even if um, even Jesus, even though he died, he came back to life. What about if we die? What if they kill us? What if they, what if they do this? Paul says, "To live is Christ, but to die is gain." He is faithful. He shows up and he shows off. And sometimes it's with the miraculous event. And sometimes it's, come on home, well done, good and faithful servant. He's good. He shows up and He shows off. Always. When He's pitted against culture, He shows up and He shows off. Look at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. and He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Um, by the way, this is like the second or third time he's confessed God as supreme because God just keeps doing his thing. He says, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their head was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. They didn't even smell like smoke. No smell of fire had come upon them. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make it a decree. Any people, any nation, any language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruin for there's no other God who's able to rescue in this way. The pagan king, because he's seen what God can do when God is pitted, pitted against culture and we persecute them, but they, they don't back down and their God shows up and shows off. Listen, the, the pagan king says, if anyone speaks ill about their God, I'm going to step in and do something about it. Our God is it's like that. Christ-centered. Listen, it's a Christ-centered testimony. It's a God-centered testimony. The Christ-centered testimony, listen, it's meant to lift up God, not you. Do you notice who's getting the attention here? It's God. It's not, hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, tell me how you did that. Tell me how you made that fourth guy appear. Tell me how you don't smell like smoke. Hey, tell me how all that happened. And they're, they're the mind of the king is automatically drawn to the God who is able to deliver. See, Christ-centered testimony is not meant to, to draw attention to you or to me. It's not, oh, how, Heath, how do you preach a sermon? Or how, how is your relationship with your wife good, even though you're a scoundrel and she's this beautiful lady and all this? How is that? Tell me about your relationship with your, your kids. It's so great. Because if you look at my life, there's lots of times where none of that's true. But when we're Christ-centered by what we speak and what we do, 
the way God has designed it is for attention to be drawn to Him. And for men and women, boys and girls, when, when His name is lifted up, for people to be drawn to Him. So what does this mean for us? What does all this mean that the, the line in the sand with God and culture, and the persecution, we can expect it, and God to show up, show up? What does this mean for us? What, is, what does a Christ-centered testimony mean for us today? Two very quick things. Here's, here's what a Christ-centered testimony means for us today. Number one, we have got to be clear with our testimony, and it's got to be about Jesus. Okay, We've got to be clear with our testimony, and it's got to be about Jesus. That means speaking up when we have a chance. Okay, um, and, and not so much... Um, defending defending the rules in the Bible, okay. Listen, I, I say that cautiously, okay, because I, I feel like we need to stand for truth. But I think there's a way that we can do that with respect, okay. What I when I'm when I'm talking about when I say um, that means speaking up when we have the chance. That means speaking of the gospel, speaking of what Christ has done for us, speaking of the sin problem that is demolished when the cross comes in, speaking up when we have a chance. Not, not speaking for what we're against. Okay? Listen, if you notice Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not, they're not at the beginning of the story saying, hey, I know the king said to bow down to the statue, but that's wrong because you shouldn't bow down to the statue. You should bow down to God. You guys don't do that. We're not going to. You need to be like us. They're not telling everybody else what to do. Right? It, it, it's not, I don't think anybody should bow down. It's, we're not going to. Right? I, th I, think we, we, I think there's a very fine line with only saying what we're, what we're for, what we're against, and actually showing that and living that and saying, me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Culture defines marriage as this, not in my house. Culture says this is what marriage looks like, not in my house. Culture says this is what you should do with your kids, not in my house. Culture says this is what you should do for entertainment, not in my house. It's me and my house. We will serve the Lord. And the reason we will is because what Jesus has done for us. It's really hard to get a lost world to act saved. Okay? It's not the goal. The goal is for them to be saved. And that happens when we speak of the gospel. So, so what, what do we need to do? We, we have to be clear with our testimony. It's, it has to be about Christ. But number two, we have to look more like Christ than we do Babylon. We, we have to look more like Christ than we do Babylon. Here's what that means. That means we have to stop sinful and questionable behavior. Alright? Christian, we have got to stop sinful and questionable behavior. And you say, we all sin, we're going to sin... Um, I sin, um, but we, we, we need to repent. We need to be quick to repent. And, the, and these behaviors that are questionable, that, that if I see you or you see me doing these things, and it's, it's hard to determine if we're a Christian, if we just see the behavior, because we need to stop those. We need to look more like Christ in Babylon. That means stop. We have to stop sinful and questionable behavior. That also means that we have to show what we believe by how we live. Listen, church. If you want to walk through the fiery furnace with Christ, 
not affected at all. You've got to give the world a reason to throw you in. Okay? Let me say it again. Because you look, you're looking at me blankly. If you want to walk through the fiery furnace with Christ, completely unaffected, you've got to first give the world a reason to throw you in there. When, when you do that, Christ shows up. He's faithful. His grace in the moment will be the sweetest thing you've ever tasted. Now, I'm pretty pumped up. I'm pretty pumped up about 2017. I'm pretty pumped up about 2018 coming up. I'm pretty pumped up for what, what, what that means for the church in a hostile world. I'm, I'm pretty pumped up about these things. I'm pretty pumped up about, about where we are in culture because God always rises to the challenge of proving His power and His faithfulness. And I believe we're in store to see Him do some great things. Let's pray. God, help us to be clear, to be Christ-centered with our testimony. God, help us to um, not make it about us, but make it about You. And God, would You build in us the confidence to speak the Gospel, to show the Gospel. God, there is this realization that when that happens, the persecution will come. You say it in your word. We've experienced it. But God, help us, help that not to silence us. Help us to have the same resolve as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our God is able to deliver us, and He will. Somehow He's going to. But even if He doesn't, we're not going to cave. We're not going to bow. Help us to do that with all love, with all respect, while still standing for truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.